All right, so this morning we are beginning a new series in this incredible book, the book of Daniel. And I have been really looking forward to this morning, kind of launching into this book. It is one of my favorite books in the Bible. It is full of these winsome and incredible and beautiful and engaging and really inspiring stories. And so this is some of the best stuff in the whole Bible, guys, and we got it right here this morning. So let's pray and let's just ask that God would speak to us as we open up this new series. Father, we ask that as we open up our Bibles, that you'd open up hearts and minds, that you would speak, that you'd make us attentive to your voice, that you would inspire us this morning afresh toward faithfulness in this world as we study together about your servant, Daniel. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, and all God's people said... So I grew up in a tradition, in a, in a church culture that really loved the book of Daniel, but they loved the book of Daniel for reasons that uh, I don't find as compelling today as I used to. They loved Daniel because they felt like it gave them somewhat of a roadmap of what was going to happen into the future. And so I was schooled by pastors who would open up the, the book of Daniel and hold the, the newspaper in their other, other hand and seek to correlate events in this book with events that were going to happen in our world in the future, specifically re regarding the Antichrist and a revived Roman Empire. Anybody here? Yes, all right. If you're new to this whole thing, you are in a great spot because you don't have that baggage that some of us do. But listen, that's unfortunate because this book is not first and foremost about giving us a window into the future. It is more specifically about guiding lives of fidelity to Jesus in the present. You see, right now we live in a culture that increasingly is out of step with the way of Jesus. And of course, we are not the first Christians, the first God followers to live in a culture and a society that was somewhat out of step with the way of Jesus. Christians have experienced this kind of thing all along the, its history. But the question is, is how do you live faithful in a world that is at times out of step with your own faith commitments and values? And that is the key question that the book of Daniel addresses. And it is a live question. Several years ago, I had some friends who were um, working at Sandia National Laboratory in Albuquerque, and they were really wrestling with the question of whether or not a Christian should, in, should use their talent, should use their time to develop weapons of mass destruction. And that's an interesting question. Is this something a Christian should give their time, their life to? Or is Jesus calling us to a way of life that is out of step with that kind of practice? I had another friend who was, uh, he owned a vineyard, or his family owned a vineyard. And out of that, he started this wine company, and then that led into other products that they were developing. At one point, he developed a, a beer product that, that had a Dio de los Muertos labels to it. It was a really cool-looking beer. And... Um, but he found himself asking the question, is this something a Christian should engage in? Should I be selling Dio de los Muertos beer? Should I have even developed it? And he's asking the question about how does a Christian engage in the broader culture? Now, of course, they are not alone. Many of us ask these type of questions all the time. We ask them about the holidays we celebrate in America. Uh, coming up is Halloween. 
and I was just listening to a discussion on the radio uh, a couple days ago uh, um, from a pastor who was declaring that Halloween is this dark and satanic and demonic holiday, and a Christian has no business engaging in this. They should totally withdraw from it. And I was kind of just thinking, like, I grew up doing Halloween, and for me, it was never about demons. It was always about dressing up in cool costumes and getting candy from your neighbors, But the question is regarding the Christian engagement in the broader culture. And I've asked questions not just about Halloween, but also cultural practices regarding Christmas. You know, how much gift giving is appropriate? How much is too much? And what does that do for kids over the long run to engage in this? You see, these are questions regarding how we engage in the broader world around us. I had a, a community group back at my old church, and we were engaged in questions about the ethics of food. And so we watched a number of different documentaries about food justice and about issues regarding the production of food and all of kind of the ethical issues surrounding that. And I remember we watched at one point a documentary called Black Gold, and it was about the uh, chocolate industry and specifically about the harvesting of cacao beans by slave child labor in the developing world, and the demand for cheap chocolate in the Western nations. And I was asking myself the question, should a Christian buy chocolate, or chocolate that at least is not fair trade? I hope the question was no, because I love chocolate. But I was asking a question about how we engage in a culture that has aspects of the culture that are out of step with Christianity. And of course, there are questions arising technology. I mean, there is a proliferation of screens in our culture. And you walk around the neighborhood. I mean, you do this. You you go to a restaurant, you walk up the neighborhood, and you just see more and more people are just looking like this. And there's more and more evidence showing a strong correlation between the use of screens and specifically the incessant absorption and consumption of social media and teenage anxiety and depression. And so we have to ask questions about, like, are there new questions we should ask as followers of Jesus with our habits of consumption of technology and of goods and how we engage in the world? There are all kinds of questions. But, you know, these are not easy questions to ask and answer, are they? And the reason is, is because we live in a very complex culture and world. And on the one hand, As a follower of Jesus, I believe, and and I think the Bible teaches, that this world ultimately belongs to God, and that human beings are created in the image of God, and that the world was created by God, and God calls it good. And therefore, there is something that theologians name common grace in the broader culture and society. There are things that are good and true and beautiful in just about every culture and society. It's just a matter of uncovering those things and finding those things. But on the other hand, God is not the only power at work in this world. There are also forces of darkness and destruction that create toxic environments and that cause there to be institutions and practices of consumption and and technological advancement and all of this stuff that, that are toxic and that actually lead to dehumanization and oppression and injustice and violence and all sorts of things. And so as a Christian, you're engaged in this culture that is both sweet and sour, that is both good and broken. And so what does it look like to be a faithful follower of Jesus in a world that is marked by both brokenness as well as beauty? 
And this is the question that the book of Daniel helps us answer. Because Daniel was actually a model of what it looked like to both engage in the broader culture, but do so in a way that was distinct for somebody who was a follower of the God of Israel, who was true to the covenant that God had made. And Daniel actually reveals to us a posture in his engagement that avoids two major pitfalls, two ways in which Christians have increasingly gone off the rails when it comes to our engagement with culture and society. And one way in which Christians often go off the rails is through retreat. In other words, you look around at the world, you, you declare everything in our surrounding world bad and evil and wicked, and we are afraid and we're anxious, and so we retreat into a little Christian bubble, a little Christian enclave, and we uh, only watch Christian movies, and we listen to Christian music, and we go to Christian hairdressers, and we eat Christian food, and uh, uh, there was even mints that came out a while back called testaments. So bad. And... Um, But you kind of withdraw into it and you surround yourself with only Christian people and only church people and religious life. But when you do that, you withdraw from the broader culture and you lose impact. And so we cannot retreat. But the other option is to accommodate. And where with those who retreat, there's a fear of being defiled by the broader culture and society. Those who accommodate fear missing out. They're afraid that if they don't practice the same habits of saving for retirement and building a 401k and going on vacations and building up to keeping their house private and secure and having all of the same products and engaging in all of the same uh, practices regarding drugs or alcohol or sex or whatever, they are going to miss out. And the forces around them begin to conform the Christian into the image of the broader culture. And of course, accommodation is equally a failure. And if we accommodate to the broader culture, we lose impact. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. put it like this. He said, this hour in history, I love this. He was actually, he says this in a sermon that he preached on the text uh, in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, where Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. And he called out people to action and called us into lives of not being conformed to the world. And listen to what he says. He says, this hour in history needs a dedicated circle of transformed nonconformists. A dedicated circle of transformed nonconformists. Our planet teeters on the brink of atomic annihilation. Dangerous passions of pride, hatred, and selfishness are enthroned in our lives. Truth lies prostrate on the rugged hills of nameless calvaries, and men do reverence before gods of nationalism and materialism. The saving of our world from pending doom will come not through the complacent adjustment of the conforming majority, not through the complacent adjustment of the conforming majority, but through the creative maladjustment of the non-conforming minority. That's good, isn't it? And this is what Jesus calls us to. 
He calls us not to retreat and not to accommodate, but to be a creative, non-conforming minority within the broader culture and society, engaged, present, but yet faithful and true to our deepest convictions as followers of Jesus, the values and the priorities of the kingdom of God. And Daniel teaches us how. And so this morning, we're going to begin our series by looking first at what Daniel did in order to resist accommodation. Next week, we're going to spend a little bit more time and look together about how Daniel actually engaged in the broader culture. But this morning, as we open up the first chapter, I want you to see how he resisted the forces of accommodation all around him. And the story picks up in Daniel chapter 1. We're going to walk through the story. Then I want to stand back and just make four observations. We want to draw out four principles, four things that Daniel did that enabled him to resist accommodation. Verse 1 of Daniel 1. He says this, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So Daniel opens his book with both a political as well as a theological reality. The political reality is that the global imperial power of his day had invaded the small nation of Israel because it had such a strategic piece of land that stretched from Assyrian Empire in the north down to the Egyptian Empire in the south, and Babylon wanted this land. And so they conquered it, and they took captive people from Jerusalem, and they took them along with instruments from God's temple in Jerusalem, and Nebuchadnezzar went and put those vessels in the temple of his God as if to say, my God is better than your God, and we defeated you. Daniel refutes that claim. He says, no, actually what happened was all in the sovereign hand of God because it wasn't simply that Nebuchadnezzar took Jerusalem, but God gave Jerusalem into his hands. Because Jerusalem, according to the prophets, had become an unfaithful city and had begun to practice the same injustice, the same oppression. They had continued to ignore the needs of the poor and the widow and the orphans around them, and so God allowed them to be defeated by the Babylonians. And defeated they were. And they took some young men from Jerusalem and brought them into the court of the king. Look what it says in verse 4, or in verse 3. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge and understanding and learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. And so when Nebuchadnezzar conquers Jerusalem, he takes the choicest young men in the whole city, uh, young men who were of noble birth, who were of a wealthy upper class, 
who were good-looking, who were well-schooled in wisdom and knowledge, who were without blemish. In fact, verse 4, it reads so completely that if you are a single young lady, you could use this in your online profile of the kind of guy you're looking for. Youths without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom and endowed with knowledge, understanding, and learning, competent to stand in the king's palace. That's the kind of man I'm after. Now, why did he take these young men? Well, because Nebuchadnezzar knew what the emperor and Darth Vader and Snoke had known. And that's that what you want to do is you want to get the best Jedis and convert them over to your side, the dark side, and then school them in your values so that they can be a force that serves your empire. And this is what Nebuchadnezzar wanted to do. And so look at what he does, verse 5. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food the king ate and the wine he drank. Look, boys, how good it is in my kingdom. You can eat at my table. You can drink my wine. And then verse 5, they were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. And among these were Daniel, Hananiah, and Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. And Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. Now, I want you to notice how intentional and strategic Nebuchadnezzar is about seeking to fashion and shape and enculturate these young men into the values and the priorities of Babylon. And note well how he does it. He really engages in a threefold strategy. First, he isolates these young men from their own home and from their culture. He takes them from Jerusalem and he brings them to Babylon. Oftentimes it is when a young person goes off to college and they're away from family and their their community and they're alone, they're isolated, that they can get engaged in all kinds of stuff and compromise. And so number one, they were isolated. But number two, they were indoctrinated. And they were sent to school at the best universities in Babylon. And they were given a three-year intensive education in the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. And you can just imagine them reading about Marduk and Tumak and, uh, you know, uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh and all of the great literature and the mythology of ancient Babylon and their philosophies and their military strategy. And all of the things that made them great so that they could stand in the king's court and be of service to the king. So number one, they were isolated. Secondly, they were indoctrinated. But thirdly, they were given a new name. Notice their names were changed. Verse 6, among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He says to Daniel, he called Belshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. Now, what you can't see beneath the surface of these kind of funky names is that the first names were Jewish names that connected them with the God of Israel. And in the ancient world, your name was your identity. It said who you were. It it told you whose you were. It told you something about your deepest allegiances and commitments. And so they changed their names in an effort to change their allegiance. And so they 
they are given a new Babylonian name that are not connected now with the God of Israel, but with the gods of Babylon in order to rock and shake their identity. And so these are tremendous forces. They are powerful forces of accommodation and enculturation. But I want you to see that against the powerful tide of enculturation comes verse 8. But Daniel, and notice what it says, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank, and therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who were not your age? So you would endanger my head the king. Now stop there. So Daniel at this point draws a line in the sand. He accepts the education. He accepts his place of privilege in the royal court. He accepts the beds of the royal courts. He accepts uh, the language. But here he draws a line. But why here? Why does he draw a line with his diet? Now, it's certainly not because he was trying to lose weight. I know there has been attempts to uh, talk about the Daniel diet. In fact, there was a popular level book released a while back called The Daniel Diet. But this isn't first and foremost about health, though I guarantee you that if for a good season of your life you gave up fatty meats and alcohol and you just ate vegetables and drank water, you would lose weight and you'd probably feel pretty good. But that's not primarily what Daniel's about. He makes this choice, he says, because he would not defile himself. Food, like your name, said something about your identity. And for the people of Israel, one of their chief identity markers, one of the badges that said, I am a part of the covenant family of God, was their diet. And specifically, they ate kosher. So they didn't eat pork, no shellfish, none of that action, no bacon. And Daniel says, how can I be sure that when the the king serves me his meats, I am not going to compromise my identity as one of the people of Israel. And so he draws the line here. Now, the commander who's in charge of these boys, I mean, he's in charge of getting them in shape, making sure that they are good to go for the king. He's freaked out by this because he's like, wait a second. If you only eat vegetables and water, like you're going to get all anemic. You're going to lose your muscle tone. You know, come on, boys, you can't do this. And so Daniel says, well, let me, let's put a test forward. And he proposes this test where there is a control group who are eating the king's diet, and then there is the Daniel group who are only eating vegetables and water. And he says, let's do this as a test. You know, Daniel's a very scientifically-minded person. He says, let's put it to a scientific test, and let's analyze the results. And the chief of the eunuch says, you are on. Look what it says. Verse uh, 12, Daniel says, Test your servants for 10 days and let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink and then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. Come on, chief. Uh, The proof is in the pudding. 
let us just do it and let's just see the results, you know? Come on, you're a results man. And so he listened to them in this matter, and he tested them for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all of the youths who ate the king's food. And so the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink, and he gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding and visions and dreams. I mean, they were graduating at the top of their class. They were magnum cum laude, you know. And he says, and at the end of that time, when the king had commanded them that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Note well, Daniel doesn't use their Babylonian names. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them to be 10 times better than all of the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. So Daniel makes a resolution. He's put to the test. And God graciously upholds and takes care of them. And the story ends. And Daniel is given to us in this text as a model of what it looks like to resist the forces of assimilation. And so now I want to just pause, and I want to just draw out four things that I think we can learn from Daniel, four ways in which you and I, like Daniel, can stand against the forces of accommodation and assimilation to broader norms and values that are contrary to the values of the kingdom of God. The first observation that I have about Daniel, the first thing that that we learn from Daniel is this. If you and I are going to engage as a creative minority, as a true faithful presence of Christ within the broader culture in which we live, at our schools, at our places of employment, on our streets, in our neighborhoods, with our kids, if we're going to be a faithful presence of the gospel, then number one, what Daniel teaches us is that we need to know who we are. You need to, number one, know your identity. Now, just like in the Babylonian Empire, our own culture names us. It names us in a variety of different ways. Our culture sometimes names us fat or stupid or unintelligent or failure. But listen, You are not defined by your past. You are not defined by your failures. You are not even defined by your dysfunctional families. You are ultimately and finally defined by your relationship with the true and living God who has come after you in Jesus Christ. You are a son and daughter of the king. And Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael And Azariah, they owned their true names. They owned their identity as a covenant member, as one of the people of God. Do you realize that throughout the book of Daniel, Daniel, although sometimes the Babylonians call him Belshazzar, Daniel never calls himself Belshazzar. He always names himself by his Hebrew name, his name that attaches him with Yahweh. He says, I am not Belshazzar, I am Daniel. 
And friends, you and I need to take that same commitment and courage to say, you know what? I will not be defined as simply a mindless consumer, as simply a screen looker adder. I will not be defined as an addict or as stupid or whatever it is. I will be defined by the identity that I have been given to me in the gospel, by my baptized identity. I have died with Christ. I have been raised with Christ. I am defined by the story of God who is the creator, who has come after us in Jesus and who ultimately will make all things right. This is a story of hope and this is my identity. And so number one, Daniel owns. He owns his identity and he doesn't let it go. He is not, he doesn't allow himself to be renamed. But secondly, not only does he own his identity, not only should we know who we are, but secondly, Daniel practices critical discernment. Now listen, this is important. Notice when Daniel is taken into the royal court, Daniel doesn't withdraw from everything in the royal court. For example, he still goes to college. He goes to secular university. He reads all of the Babylonian literature. He engages in Babylonian pop culture, no doubt. (laughs) And and he's kind of immersed in this whole world. He doesn't withdraw from that. He learns the language. You know, he learns Akkadian. And my sister was a, a student of ancient Semitic languages. She learned how to read and write uh, Akkadian, which is, I believe, uh, one of the oldest written languages in the world at, at UCLA. And um, I don't think it was a fun job for her to do. But Daniel learned Akkadian. <laughs> like, he learned the language. He learned how to talk to the people around him. Daniel didn't give up his position of privilege. He came from wealth and affluence. That was privilege. He goes to the royal court because of his prior position of privilege. And he goes there, but he doesn't withdraw from his place of privilege. Rather, he uses privilege in order to influence the kingdom. He uses his wealth, his resources, his standing for the sake of the kingdom of God. He doesn't simply divest himself and go out and live in the fields. But he does draw a line here. He draws a line with food. Why this? Well, no doubt he was discerning what was happening in the world around him, and he thought, like, this is a huge issue for me. If I compromise here, it's going to have a tremendous effect on us all. And no doubt he felt like, I have to be true to my identity. This is a cultural marker. It's a badge that I am a person of God. And so he held on to it, but he reached that conclusion only after critical discernment. And just as Daniel engaged in critical discernment about his own culture, so you and I must practice critical discernment when it comes to our own vocations, our own engagement with school, our own analysis of uh, the philosophy class that we're taking at university, of the practices that are happening in the corporate office, of the practices that are happening with the real estate agents, and, and where do I need to draw the line? Practices of consumption in our culture, where do I, where do you need to draw the line? You know, it's not very often that you come across uh, an Old Testament scholar 
one of these academics uh, that writes these academic commentaries from one of these prestigious universities. It's not very often that you come across a little paragraph in this commentary that uh, kind of shakes you up a little bit and convicts you. But I came across one this week. And one of my jobs is actually to uh, go during the week and to pour over God's word and to study and research and to be convicted by the Holy Spirit in my study and get this burden like, oh, oh, and then, and then carry it out here and then throw it at you all. That's what I'm going to do right now. But, but listen to this question that he raises. I think this is important. He says, what is the food and wine that the modern emperors are offering us? The key here is that these enticements can be disguised as necessities, like food. So much advertising and marketing is directed toward changing people's habits to entice them to buy products that will become necessities that they simply, quote, can't live without. And then he says this, North American consumers especially are not used to asking serious questions about their consumptive habits. Are you? Or do you just shop more on Amazon? Not only whether there is too much, you know, we're buying too much, consuming too much, but whether it is consumption that supports a living wage and safer environments for workers. Thank you, Old Testament scholar for throwing that at us. But these are questions we have to grapple with. Now, I grant that you don't always know. You know, it's interesting to me that in this text, Daniel, in, he, 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 he embraces a practice that was clearly given to him in the Bible, namely eating kosher. But he also avoids wine. The Old Testament never calls you to avoid wine. Why does he choose to do it in this context, in this place? There had to have been something else kind of in the culture of what that meant, and he chose to withdraw from it. And so, too, we need to engage in discernment so that we can see both those places that are direct things. We need to just say, no, that's directly against Scripture. But other areas of like, well, what in this time and place do I need to pull out of? You know, I I just got through uh, a couple months back reading this mammoth biography on Frederick Douglass uh, called Prophet of Freedom. It is awesome, and uh, I would recommend it. It's like 800 pages. It's like the super academic thing, but it is like the definitive Frederick Douglass biography, and what a massive, compelling force in 19th century America. I mean, he was like the voice speaking Christian convictions. But it's interesting, as he kind of lived, he began his life in one place when it came to his own discernment of culture. He actually began his abolitionist life as a Garrisonian, along with this uh, Quaker, William Garrison, who was an anarchist. He thought the American government was so corrupt it should just be totally disbanded, and as a pacifist. But as Frederick Douglass goes along in his life, his positions start to change. His deep roots in Christianity don't change, but his understanding of what it means to relate to culture do. And a little bit later in his life, he comes to see that actually he doesn't need to disband the American government. He needs to critique the American government by its own best principles. And he does that. And he became this fiery voice that brought about tremendous change. 
And so too, we need to engage in discernment around us and say, what does it look like to engage in our culture as a distinct, faithful presence of Christ? And so number one, he knew who he was. Second, he, he practiced critical discernment. But thirdly, I want you to see this. He made a resolution. He came to a point of decision. And friends, I do think this is where we often falter. Nowhere well in our text, Daniel didn't get to a point where, you know, they, they give him this food and this drink and all this stuff, and he's like, oh, I really wouldn't ordinarily like to participate in this. He doesn't say Daniel desired to live differently. He said Daniel resolved to do differently. And there is a world of difference between desire and between decision. You know, I might be watching the Olympics with my wife and uh, watch, you know, like one of those great uh, skiers that goes down the big mountain and goes off that big jump. What do they call that thing? Slalom or something? Ski, ski, the ski jump. They go off a jump and they call it a ski jump on skis. <laughs> of course. But, you know, I've watched those guys, you know, just fly through the air like this, you know. And haven't you been like, I would love to do that. I mean, they look so smooth, they just fly through the air and then they just... You know, I can turn to my wife and say, oh, I would love to ski jump. And she looks at me and she says, but do you intend to ski jump? I can watch somebody play the piano brilliantly, and I've said this. I've said, oh, I'd love to play the piano. My wife goes, but do you intend to play the piano? There's a world of difference between desire and intent. And very often where we fail is we fail at the level of intention and decision. And we don't make enough firm, committed decisions to say, I will not go there. I will not look at that. My computer will not go to that site. I will not spend my money only on myself. I will give it away. I will not simply retreat into my garage and shut my gates and turn on my alarm systems. I will open up my house to my neighbors. I will do this. I have decided I will live differently in this culture. Have you made a decision? Do you intend to live differently? Years ago, I read this book um, by this 18th century uh, writer, kind of this radical whose name was William Law. And he wrote this book, get this, get the title. You would never see this on a New York Times bestsellers list. He wrote this book entitled, A Serious Call to a Devout and Holy Life. Try to tweet that out, see how many likes you get. But listen to what he says. He starts, you know, kind of musing over th this question. He says, why is it that former Christians, and he's speaking to his own kind of compromised environment, and he says, why is it that former Christians seem to live so much more committed and pious lives than we are? And listen to how he answers it. He says, if you will stop here and ask yourselves why you are not as pious as the primitive Christians were, your own heart will tell you. It is neither through ignorance nor inability, but purely because you have never thoroughly intended it. Now, listen, don't, don't misunderstand me. 
I am not saying that all you need is just firm decision and intentionality. You need so much more than that. You need the grace and power of God. You need a community of people. You need accountability. You need all kinds of stuff. You need more than intention and decision. But you do not need less. And very often we fail because we haven't started here. What do you intend to do? How have you decided to live? Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's delicacies. And so he knew who he was. He, he owned his identity as part of the covenant people of God. He engaged in critical discernment so that he could tell, this is the space where I need to draw the line. And then he reached firm decision. But finally, I want you to see that his firm decisions was followed, was followed by risky and courageous action. What's the first thing that he does after he resolves in his heart that he won't defile himself with the king's delicacies? He goes to one of the top officials of the most powerful empire on the face of the planet, and he tells that official, he says, you know, I know, I know what the king said. I know what the most powerful person on the planet said about my diet, but I want you to reconsider it. I'm not going to eat that diet. Instead, I'm going to eat this diet. Do you think that took some moral courage? Oh, you better believe it did. And so he takes this courageous step. And then even when he puts it to the test, did he know the outcome? I mean, what if it wasn't better in 10 days? What if he was worse? That was another step of courage. He took courageous action, but here's the point. He didn't just make a decision, he did something about it. Francis Chan tells this great, uh, he has this great little illustration. Francis Chan is this um, kind of fiery preacher, very convicting guy, but he tells this, this uh, illustration. He says, imagine I go up to my little girl and I say, honey, I want you to go clean your room. And she runs off into her room, and a little bit later, some of her friends come over, and they run back into her room, and they're all over there for a couple hours, and their friends leave, and a couple hours later, and then he says, and I go back into her room, and the room is just as messy, if not more messy, than it was before. And I walk up to my daughter, I say, honey, honey, what happened? Don't you remember I said, clean your room? And she said, oh, daddy, daddy, check this out. We went off, and we memorized your command. Watch this. Honey, go clean your room. Isn't that awesome, Dad? And then, Dad, we got together in a little small group, and we just processed together what it would look like if we cleaned the room. We prayed over it. We were just all broken over it. I mean, we're just a mess. Our rooms aren't messy. We're not messy. And then we just went out, and we just all like, we cried about it. I said, but honey, did you clean the room? Oh, no, we didn't do that. It's too true, isn't it, to our experience. Jesus has invited us into lives of decision and courageous action and obedience. And so we want to be a community of character in the midst of a culture that in many ways and shapes and forms is, is carrying us off in other directions. But it calls for actions. We need to do something. You know, in 1791, the parliament 
uh, voted down an abolitionist bill. And do you know what the abolitionists did? They called for a boycott of sugar. And do you know what 300,000 people in Britain did? They didn't put sugar in their tea. They fasted from sugar for the sake of the abolitionist movement. They took it to the streets and they acted out on something that they had a deep conviction over. They didn't just talk about it like it worked itself out in very practical ways in the culture. What about you? What about me? This is Daniel. Daniel is teaching us how to resist the forces of enculturation. Own your identity. Practice critical discernment. Come to a firm decision and then move out in action. And let's do this together in the world. But listen, the final thing I want you to see as we just turn now to the Lord's table in closing. What I want you to see is not everything depends on Daniel's decision. Now listen to me very carefully. Daniel was firm and he was resolved and he moved to action. But Daniel was just a young man in that big, broad Babylonian empire after all, wasn't he? Daniel needed something more than Daniel's own resolve and decision. And you see that in the text. What did Daniel need? Daniel needed the gracious presence of God with him, enabling him and empowering him along the way. You know, at the three turning points in the story, there was one phrase that is repeated. Do you know what that phrase is? And the Lord gave. And the Lord gave. And the Lord gave. All accompanying Daniel and his friends' resolve and their decision and obedience was the generous provision and presence and the love of God with them, enabling their obedience. And the God who gave and the God who gave and the God who gave all in the courts of the king with Daniel is the God who ultimately gave the world his own son. God in God's own self, who knew his own identity, came into this world with a firm resolve and he decided to be for us and not against us. And he went all the way to action, to obedience, even to the death on the cross, to break the power of sin and darkness and evil over us and to welcome us to himself so that he might form us into a new humanity, a new community to belong to him, to live out of this new identity and to live in this world in ways that are life-giving and humanizing and beautiful and sacrificial and sometimes difficult, but always good. And to do so never alone because he gives his very presence to us and he says, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. And may that good presence of God and may his deep, sure love of God that has decided and resolved to be for you and not against you, may that be the power you need to live in the lives of hospitality and generosity and sacrifice and love and purity and righteousness and justice and goodness 
in this world. Amen.